Well, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, these last few chapters in the Gospel of Luke, it's going to be a little bit like watching a season of the television show 24. Um, it's not on tele, it's not going to be as epic, like there's not going to be fighting. I don't think anybody's going to die. So it's, it's, in some ways, it's not at all like 24. Um, but, you know, it's it's been out for a few years and it's not on. There's no more new episodes. So if you watched it now, you could watch them as quickly as you wanted probably. If you, you know, Hulu or Netflix or something. But originally when they came out, they came out one episode a week. So every week there was a new hour of Jack Bauer's epic day. It was a 24-hour day, hence the name 24. So what we're doing here at church Uh, until Easter is a little bit like that. We're taking the last week of Jesus's life, his epic last week of life, and we're looking at it one slice at a time. Jesus dies on a Friday, but before that Friday, the Sunday before, he rides into Jerusalem and is hailed as king. On Monday, he cleanses the temple of the money changers and those who are selling things. And on Tuesday, he has a series of confrontations with the religious leaders. The first is about authority. The second is about a parable, he tells. And the third confrontation on that Tuesday so long ago was about taxes. If your pay stub is anything like mine, likely you have lines on it like this, like FICA. Right, the Federal um, Insurance Contribution Act, so which pays towards Social Security and Medicare, or the FIT, the Federal Income Tax, or if you live in Susquehanna Township, as I do, then you have the Susquehanna Township EIT, the Earned Income Tax. You and I, before we even get a chance to buy a soda, or pay into our mortgage, or tithe to our church, pay our taxes. And how much income tax we pay, and how much is appropriated to schools, and roads, and the military, and some aspects of so-called reproductive health care, are lightning rods. Once upon a time, even a war was fought, at least in part over taxation without representation. But however controversial taxes are in America today, taxes were exponentially more controversial among the tens of thousands of worshipers who were in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover the week that Jesus died. Jerusalem, as I hope to show you as we look at this passage closer, was like a house filled with gas where one spark could have set it off. So follow along with me as I read from Luke chapter 20. I'm going to be reading verses 19 through 26, and then we'll pray that God would be our teacher. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. Luke writes, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that is, Jesus, at that very hour. For they perceived that Jesus had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. 
So they asked him, Teacher, we know you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Would you join me in prayer as we begin to study it closer, praying that God would be our teacher. Heavenly Father, there's not a person here, myself included, who as we sing, I surrender all, isn't also able to acknowledge there are yet parts of our life fully surrendered. And yet that is what this passage is calling forth in us. A full surrender. And so Lord, I pray as we look at this passage, whatever it is for each one of us that we might be holding back, that in light of the gospel, this safe place where we're loved in Jesus Christ, we would be able to surrender more and more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This passage is about many things, I suppose. But the way I want to organize our study of it is around the last line of the passage, which says, marveling at his answer, they became silent. Marveling at his answer, they became silent. Wonder and awe and amazement. So marveled, in fact, that at least at this moment, they're unable to speak. I wonder if you've ever been like that. So overwhelmed with surprise and wonder, you can hardly believe what's happened. A few years ago, my wife and I were recipients of someone's extraordinary generosity. And we've received amazing gifts from family before. This was someone who hardly ever knew, hardly knew us but a few years. We weren't even sure what to do or what to say, how to respond. As I look closer at this passage, I just I want to ask two questions. Why first, why did they marvel, these religious leaders? And then why, when I look at the way that Jesus is presented to us in in this passage, why do I marvel? To understand why the religious leaders marveled, we need to better grasp what's happening in this passage, but not only this passage, what's, what's what's happening in the surrounding context. 
And I don't want to presume that everyone here this morning has been with us for these last few weeks. So I might say a few things that have already been said. The context is Jesus is clashing with these religious leaders. And it's all taking place in the vicinity of the temple. And in every conflict, the intensity is increasing. Sort of like turning up the heat on a stove. Last week, Jason, as he was preaching, he taught through a parable that Jesus told that was a scathing critique of the religious leaders' leadership and their hard-heartedness. And they knew the parable was pointed right at them. There was no ambiguity. In verse 17 of Jason's passage, it says that Jesus looked directly at them as he said it. As he gave the punchline. And then in our passage, verse 19, just reading it again, it says the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that hour. That's not hands to like congratulate him or give him a massage. <laughs> It's like hands to, you know, to put around his neck. That's what they want to do. Because they perceived, how perceptive of them, that he told this parable against them. But they feared the people, we read. No ambiguity. The heat on the stove goes from a five, we'll say, to a seven. I say a seven because it's going to get hotter still in the coming weeks. But rather than repenting, which... The parable invited them to do. They doubled down. They sent spies to catch Jesus. Quote in in something he said. So as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Verse 20. That's an important phrase. To deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. It's important to understand that line. Israel at the time was occupied by Rome and had been for some 75 years and they hated it. The religious leaders had latitude to conduct business, but they were kept on a short leash. And one of the things they were unable to do was executions. That responsibility was in Rome's power. And so to deliver someone up to an execution, you had to have a good reason to do so. And the religious leaders are seeking to give Rome that very reason to execute Jesus. Let me reread verses 21 and 22 to see the way they ask a question here, hoping that they can, out of the fallout from this question, deliver Jesus up. So they asked him, Teacher, We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality. We'll come back to that phrase later. But truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute or pay taxes to Caesar or not? The question of lawfulness was not a question of whether taxes were lawful to Rome. Rome made the law. It was lawful to them. (laughs) The question had to do with lawfulness in the sight of God. The thinking went something like this. Rome is evil and pagan. And we are good and followers of God. So why should we pay taxes to them? It was a little more sophisticated to that. But but that's basically what's going on. And by the way, as best as I can tell, taxes were something like 30 or 40% at the time. So not insignificant. So on the surface, it's about taxes. 
But I would say that beneath the surface, their question is really about something else. Their question had the agenda of tripping Jesus up and getting him in trouble, either with Rome or with the crowds, who were told in the previous chapter, they're hanging on his every word. A few years ago, GQ magazine interviewed one of the guys on the show, Duck Dynasty about his view of homosexuality and gay marriage. And I'm not sure I've ever seen an entire episode of Duck Dynasty. I'm not sure I've ever read an entire installment of GQ magazine. I'm not sure I'd be a huge fan of either if I'd, you know, pursued through that, uh, of, of, of getting through an entire episode or magazine. But, but I'll say this. I'd submit to you that their question by GQ magazine to this guy, Duck Dynasty guy, I think it's Phil Robertson, had little to do with their inquiry as to the historic position of the church on such matters. Their question was about stirring controversy and selling magazines. Here's a loose cannon. Let's ask him a delicate question. That's what's going on with Jesus. It's about taxes, but not really. If he answered no, saying, forget Rome. Don't pay, don't give a dime to those Gentile pigs. Then he's in trouble with Rome, quite a bit of trouble. And if he says, come on guys, Rome's not so bad, just, just pay the taxes. He's in trouble with the crowd. And it was big trouble. Remember the context. Think of the pressure the governor, Pontius Pilate, is under. He'd come in from Caesarea in the north down to Jerusalem for this very event. There were perhaps an extra 200,000 people in town. And not just any people in any town for any reason. They were Jews in Jerusalem for Passover. These pilgrims were returning to their holy capital city of Jerusalem to commemorate the Passover, which was the event whereby God decimated Egypt because of their heavy yoke upon God's people. And there were many Jews in Jerusalem for Passover wondering if God would do it again. Look at it like this. We might quibble about aspects of the federal income tax, but imagine how much we would detest paying the FIT were America occupied by a foreign nation. There's a popular television show that imagines a future where America didn't win, and America and others won World War II, but rather Germany and Japan won. And imagines what life would be like. And so it has America divided up into half under German occupation and half under the rule of Japan. Now imagine if in that scenario, a million Americans marched to Washington, D.C. Note the name even, Washington, D.C. And they marched on the 4th of July... Independence Day, 
And now what happens if at the base of the Washington Monument, Washington, Revolutionary War, the topic of the German federal income tax comes up? That's a house filled with gas. But Jesus can't be trapped. (laughs) That's what I love about Jesus. You can't put him in some sort of mental version of a Brazilian jiu-jitsu armbar or some other mental intellectual chokehold. You can't do that. He's too good. Look at verses 23, 24, and 25. Look how he responds. Verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness. Yeah, he did. (laughs) And he said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription Excuse me, I lost my place. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, rightly, Caesar's. And he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That word likeness is loaded with allusion to a number of places, but particularly Genesis chapter 1, the creation account. Where we read that God made male and female in his likeness and image. In other words, if Caesar wants a few piddly coins, give them to him. You owe it to him. They have roads and aqueducts and a measure of safety. And, well, his image is on the coin. Give it to him. But you, you are in God's image and likeness. You give everything To God. Love him. Serve him. Surrender all to him. Because all to him you owe. So I'll just pause. Is that how you describe your relationship to God? When we had our church baptisms here in the fall. One of the men who was baptized mentioned how the Lord had changed him. And from the way he described it, he used a phrase I I, I won't soon forget. He said, Jesus used to be something of an accessory in my life. Before God changed him, before the gospel became real to him. And in this passage, it's as though Jesus is asking you whether God is an accessory in your life or Lord of your life. There is a difference. Perhaps an eternal one. The religious leaders marvel at Jesus' answer. And truthfully, both secular and religious people have marveled at Jesus' answer for 2,000 years. But these religious leaders, they stand amazed. (laughs) They brought their A game. We might say they got schooled. They try to trap Jesus, and not only does Jesus escape, but he totally reframes the fight or conflict in such a way that shows that they're in the wrong. That's why they marveled. They marveled because they got beat. But I want to spend the rest of the time talking about why do I marvel at Jesus in this passage, and why I think you should marvel too. Five things I want to point out. I'll go through them um, fairly briefly. The first one, I guess, is less about Jesus than the others. But the first one is, I marvel at the hardness of our own hearts. I'm amazed 
at these religious leaders, their, their marvel doesn't translate into joyful, obedient worship. Rather than repent, we so often try to wiggle out from under the conviction Jesus brings. Deflect it, perhaps. Listen to the way these religious leaders are described in this passage. They sought to lay hands on him. They perceived that he told this parable against them. They feared the people. They watched him. They sent spies. They pretended to be sincere. They tried to catch him in something he said. They wanted to deliver him up. And they were crafty. That's an ugly look in the mirror. But they don't look. They won't look at it. They look away. Again, rather than repent, we so often, through trickery, try and wiggle out of the conviction that Jesus brings. Don't do that. Last week, a newspaper broke a story about certain churches in a certain denomination who had handled not a few cases of sexual abuse. And there will be many who their first impulse and maybe their settled conviction is to try and discredit that report. Rather than seeing that report as a gift and a wake-up call to repentance and reformation in the church. There will be those who are more concerned about the optics. That is, more concerned about how it makes us look rather than about how we should change. That was last week. This week, another pastor of a large multi-site church was fired for abuse of authority, which apparently led him to a host of other lousy things. And this is the second firing of a mega-mega church pastor in Chicago this year. And there will be leaders in churches across the country who rather than looking at these stories and seeing them as invitation to repentance and reflection and reformation in our own hearts, instead they'll look at him, we'll look at them and say, yeah, but they're not like me and I'm not like them. As Ben and Jason and I were talking about last week's sermon and last week's passage, we meet every Monday and debrief the sermon and figure out how we can look at things better and improve and grow and bring in other passages. And one passage that came up that there wasn't time for last week, but I would think I want to make time for this week was Revelation chapter 16. It's an odd passage in some ways. But in that passage, God pours out his wrath by the bowlful. We read these verses, these things, and picking up and Cutting in here a little bit, but beginning in verse 8, we read, The fourth angel poured out his bowl, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. But they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. But they didn't repent of their deeds. The seventh angel poured out his bowl and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. The point I think we're supposed to take away from those verses as readers is that the bowls of God's wrath were penultimate, not ultimate. 
They weren't the final thing. They were the thing that led to the final thing. What I mean is they were opportunities to repent. They were invitations. Just like the clashing Jesus has here with these religious leaders on this fateful Tuesday so long ago is supposed to be an opportunity for God's light to shine across all of their heart. And any places they're out of step or we're out of step with the ways of God, the will of God, it's supposed to be an opportunity for us to bring that before him. And I marvel that this didn't happen. Which leads me to the rest of the reflections I'd like to make. And they're all about Jesus. I want to give you, as best as I can as a preacher, the gift of reflecting on the wonder of Jesus. I don't want you to leave this morning with ten things you have to do. Although that could be right some Sundays to talk about ten things we need to do to follow Jesus better. I want to give you the gift of just enjoying your Savior. Jesus stands in stark contrast to us. And one way I marvel at him is that he cannot be manipulated. We can, but he can't. One commentator mentioned something interesting about flattery, which, which I'd like to re-say, um, which is flattery is one of the ways they try to manipulate Jesus. The commentator says, gossip is saying behind someone's back what we would never say to their face. I'd never heard this before. But flattery is saying to someone's face what we'd never say behind their back. And oh, do they lay on the flattery thick, Things that they most certainly didn't say behind his back. But it's interesting to me, not just that they flatter him, but there's a certain humorous irony with the content of their flattery. Oh, Jesus, what we love about you is that you're never moved by flattery. You, Jesus, you're so good at shooting things straight. You're not moved by what people think of you. We love that about you, Jesus. Thanks for being great, Jesus. (laughs) The literal translation of what they say about Jesus not showing partiality, there's a little footnote if you're using the ESV Bible, English Standard Version, it's just the one we happen to preach from that, that draws attention to this but but the literal phrase of they did not or um they they didn't jesus didn't show partiality is he didn't receive face kind of wooden so we translate it you know favoritism and so receive faces like so i look at your faces even right now as we're preaching so like if you're scowling at me well then I'll, i'll try and change i'll tell a joke or if you're like happy then i'll just you know give you more of yeah all right i could do more of that what he's saying is jesus doesn't do that he doesn't pander to the crowd And I wouldn't make much of that detail. It's honestly, it's just a little footnote. We'd probably just preach right past it. Except for the fact that during Advent, we were preaching through the Old Testament, parts of the Old Testament book of Isaiah that talked about the coming Messiah. And one of those weeks, we spent a whole whole week in chapter 11 of Isaiah. And one of the things we marveled at was the explicit statement that the Messiah would not receive face. He, he wouldn't, he'd make judgments that weren't based on what he sees with his face, the faces of people or what he hears with his ears. He's going to judge with equity and righteousness. The Messiah was not going to receive face. And that was a good thing. And so all that to say here in uh, Luke chapter 20, the, 
Leaders look at the very Messiah who is long ago promised and they praise him for doing the very thing that the people of God had been hoping the Messiah would do one day and they don't believe a word of their own praise. But we should. What they say, even though they say it's sinister, is true. Jesus can't be manipulated. What a savior, what a messiah. In seminary, I remember being told, and I've heard it repeated a few times since, that when a pastor, they, 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 they tell you, kind of here, you know, here, here, word of the wise type of thing here, take this to heart. When you go and interview at churches someday, be a little skeptical of the person who picks you up from the airport and wants to be buddy-buddy with you. Now, I don't say, I have no idea who picked me up from an airport during my interviewing. Uh, that would be awkward. Um, and I'm not saying this, to, and I don't even think they mean it literally, like it's only the airport person. It's, it's sort of just, hey, those people that want to be your friend that first few month you're there, they might just be doing it because they want to be your friend, or they might be doing it to butter you up and get you on their side. Now, again, I, I don't feel that's the case here at all, and those people have left. <laughs> no, um, that's not awkward, is it? Um, but I say it to say that that, war- that that warning has to exist to pastors is a statement that I can be persuaded wrongly. I receive face. My pastoring can become uneven through flattery, but not the pastoring of Jesus. I marvel at that. I also marvel at the wisdom of Jesus. You can't trick or trap him. The question the religious leaders ask is admittedly a brilliant question. You can't answer it without getting in trouble. It's impossible to answer the question unless you're Jesus. And so if the question is brilliant, how much more so is his answer? But it's not just his answer, at least to me, that seems brilliant. There's this rhetorical device of asking for a coin rather than just referring to a coin. That's also brilliant. Here's what I mean. Think about it. Why not just say whose likeness and inscription is on a denarius? You and I know that on a dollar bill, like whose face is on that? Washington. Like we could just refer to it and we just, no one needs to hold one up. And they knew Caesar's likeness and inscription was on their coinage. Like they were well aware of it, so aware that before people did business in the temple, they had money changers there to get it out of the Roman money. They knew that the coin had his image and likeness on it, and it said Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus, on one side. And they didn't like that, so they changed it. So why, Jesus, not, why not just refer to what is common knowledge? Jesus asked for the coin to make the point that they were already using Roman coins. And this whole business about trying to trap them to see whose side he was on was bogus. Jesus was saying, hey guys, what's that in your pocket? Oh, (laughs) it's a Roman coin. That's funny. You say you hate Rome, but you have their money. And you would love more of it. Because you're not giving it all to God. All of yourselves to God. See, the Pharisees wanted to present themselves as free from all of this, and they weren't. And the wisdom 
of Jesus knew it. It said earlier in the Gospel of Luke, and worth re-saying here, that in Jesus, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Luke eleven thirty one. And I marvel at the willingness of Jesus to respect authorities. Just two to go here. This one could be a long one. I'm going to make it very short. It could be a long one because it could become a whole topic to discuss for the whole sermon, but I'm going to make it very short. I marvel at the willingness of Jesus to respect authorities. When Jesus interacts with the religious leaders, he's often firm, but he's never disrespectful. Remember the, that before he rebukes them, he spent a night in prayer weeping for them. And when Jesus, think about this, when Jesus says, pay tax, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus is telling them to give money to the very government that who in just a few days time would crucify him with their soldiers. It's not a one-to-one, but it's not a stretch, even though it's provocative to say it this way. He's bankrolling the very government that would crucify him. That is an amazing respect for God-ordained authority and an amazing trust in the sovereignty of God. We might have our gripes about government, but Christians, is your griping infused with respect and covered in tears? Finally, finally, I marvel at the sacrificial love of Jesus. I marvel at that. The Gospel of Luke focuses in on Jesus. It's written so that we would make sense of him. We might say there are many actors on the stage, the crowd, the disciples, and so on. But especially in these latter chapters, the floodlights dim and the spotlight is trained on Jesus for us to marvel at him. The religious leaders, they're still in view, but it seems that their part is mostly to be a contrast, a foil. Jesus is marvelous because his heart is not hard like our hearts. He can't be manipulated like us. His wisdom exceeds our own. His relationship with the authorities is beyond mere token respect. And his sacrificial love for his enemies costs him his life. I'm amazed at that. Everyone around Jesus, the religious leaders, the crowds, the secular bystanders, the, even the closest followers, they're all half-hearted. And still Jesus, he's all in. And if anyone is in God's image and likeness, it's Jesus. The book of Hebrews speaks of Jesus, chapter 1, uh, verse 3, as the ex- exact imprint of God's nature and the radiance of God's glory. If anybody is in God's likeness, it's Jesus, and Jesus gives all to God, all to his Father. He goes to the cross for sinners like me, and that amazes me. I want you to marvel at that. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it's a familiar verse, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at this passage and be amazed. And 
If Jesus doesn't amaze you, pray. Ask him. Lord, say, say my heart's grown cold. Would you am- amaze me afresh? He would love to answer that prayer. For the religious leaders there, a marvel did not lead to joyful, obedient, full-hearted worship. But that's where Luke wants it to lead us. Marveling at God's mercy, we live our lives as living sacrifices. For this, the Apostle Paul writes, and we read it earlier in the worship service, is our spiritual act of worship. Worshipful marveling that leads to worshipful obedience. Would you join me in prayer as we invite the worship team to come back up and pray even now that God would enable us to marvel afresh. Heavenly Father, we are a distracted lot. All the shiny things catch our attention. Lord, would you give us the courage to look right at our own sin and then to look at your grace and your mercy, which far exceeds our own sin. And would you cause us to be amazed afresh? We pray this in your son's name.